Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Aaron Klein, who is co-founder and CEO of Riskalyze, one of the most popular risk alignment tools in the financial services industry and a darling in the fintech community. Riskalyze invented the risk number, which is a quantitative methodology that helps advisors drive alignment between clients and their portfolios. Their mission is to empower the world to invest fearlessly. On today's episode, Aaron and I discuss how the global pandemic has potentially vaulted us into a risk-first decade, why a quantitative approach to risk assessment is more effective than a qualitative one, how behavioral economics impact the way investors and retirement plan participants make decisions, and ways that tools like Riskalyze can help advisors harness that behavior for their clients rather than trying to change it, and the opportunities and challenges that Aaron and his team have experienced in the ERISA world versus the wealth management space. Aaron also shares his single best piece of advice for making ERISA fiduciary smarter, which is to get risk at the heart of helping participants make investment elections so they can be fully bought into their decisions. And be sure to listen to the end where Aaron shares a little about he and his wife Casey's personal story as adoptive parents of Spencer, who was born in South Korea, and Emma and Teddy, who were both born in Ethiopia. This experience led Aaron and Casey to co-found Hope Takes Root, which is an initiative that uses vocational training and life mentoring to change the future for orphans and at-risk kids in Ethiopia. It's a very cool, inspiring story that I really connected with, and I think you will too. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with Aaron Klein from Riskalyze. Aaron Klein, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thrilled to be with you. What I'm so excited about today is to discuss really the behavioral finance aspect of investing, especially for retirement plan participants. And, you know, Riskalyze, you guys have have been just an incredible success story really in the the fintech space and and creating tools that that I think your mission is to to empower the world to invest fearlessly. So for those listeners who may not be familiar with Riskalyze, could you give a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. You know, it, it's it's wild. We are coming up on 10 years as a company next March. So incredible to kind of look back at the last nine and think about the journey that we've been on and thrilled to have the opportunity to, to serve tens of thousands of advisors today the way that we do. You know, the company started as a little bit of a conversation a few years before that between me and a friend of mine who was a financial advisor. And I, I was running product for a division of an options brokerage firm. I was watching, you know, kind of building technology products that options traders would use to think about risk. And, you know, those options traders range from the very, very sophisticated to, you know, frankly, a lot of unsophisticated options traders. And I I just remember commenting to my friend, Mike, it is crazy how the average individual thinks about the concept of risk. And he said to me, if you think that's crazy, you should think, see how many of us financial advisors think about it. You know, we, we just have not really had the tools in this industry to understand who people are. We kind of don't treat people as individuals. 
we we just kind of talk to them, stereotype them a little bit based on age, maybe in time horizon. And, and then we just kind of drop them into these buckets that we've labeled conservative, moderate, and aggressive. And, you know, the, the, the challenge, of course, with that is that, you know, you and I and say an asset manager could all use the word moderate. And we have no idea if the three, you know, if each of the three of us mean the same thing by that word. And, you know, it struck the both of us as like, you know, this would be the equivalent of like architect and contractor and person trying to build a home you know, are talking to each other and they're saying, remember, they want a moderately conservative hallway leading to their moderately aggressive bedroom, right? Like that, that there's a reason we put feet and inches into the blueprints when we're building a home or an office. And we really believe that somebody needed to put the feet and inches into this process for financial advisors. And so, you know, Riskalyze was born and the risk number was born. You know, we started working on building that technology around understanding who somebody is from a risk perspective. It's got a very deep foundation in, in, in math and kind of quantitative, objective approach to understanding who people are from a risk perspective. You know, that's based on top of the, of the academic framework that won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002. It's called prospect theory, but prospect theory in and of itself is actually pretty well, it can definitely put you to sleep. It's an academic paper, but it's it's also pretty, there's some things about it that are interesting. Like when Kahneman was doing the work in universities, he would use college students with relatively nominal amounts of money, right? Like, you know, would you, would you like $22 now or do you want to risk that for a chance to make $55 or something like that, right? So it turns out that where prospect theory actually starts to get useful is when you can apply real dollar amounts to it. Right. And so that's one of the fundamental principles that we've always used with what we built was that real dollar amounts, when people are actually looking and understanding trade offs between risk and certainty for their actual money, that's where you start to get meaning out of this and you can arrive at a risk number that makes sense for that individual. I like to put it this way Warren Buffett and I might have the same risk number. But if I did the risk number process with his amount of money, I have no idea how it would come out because I can't really relate to billions of dollars, right? Conversely, if he did the risk number process with my amount of money, I can guarantee you it would come out as a risk 99 because he'd look at this and say, that's a trivial amount of money. Risk, 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 right? right. And so, so we really believe that that's very personal. That was one of the big breakthroughs was, was figuring that out. Then we kind of had to build like, how do you, how do you cross the chasm of aligning what somebody feels about their money with the same kind of risk number scale on portfolios. And, you know, once we, you know, once we kind of, you know, crossed that chasm and, and built that bridge, the idea of risk alignment was, was born. And that was 2013 that we rolled the product out for financial advisors. It kind of took off like a rocket. And, you know, today we serve tens of thousands of them across the country. But what's, what's incredible about that is here we are in 2020. And, you know, I, I really believe that this has launched a risk first decade. You look at what happened with the pandemic and the big market crash, you know, back in the, in the March and April timeframe. Yes, we've had a, a, you know, quite the snapback in the market since then. But frankly, that, that only exacerbates the trend. Like risk is at the center of how people are, are making decisions. We felt like that's how it should be in 2013 and 14 and 15 and 16 and so on last last decade. But in 2020, it, I, I, we just see a sea change 
across how people are perceiving things and making decisions and risk is at the center of that. I mean, people are having to make risk reward decisions about going to the grocery store for crying out loud, right? And so we really believe we're in this new decade of risk that, you know, for financial advisors, I don't know, like not having a risk solution on their desk in 2020 is starting to look like not having a computer on their desk in 2000. And, and I think that's really interesting. We, we did not predict a global pandemic in 2020. We wouldn't have wished this on anybody or the world. But I do think that it's an incredible opportunity for financial advisors, regardless of kind of where they practice and what they focus on, because it's the risk first decade and, and clients are making decisions through a whole different lens now. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I want to unpack a few of the things that you said there. Danny Kahneman, who you talked about, a, you know, a behavioral mm-hmm. economist yeah. who did a lot of foundational research and, sure. and uh, along with, you know, people like Cass Sunderstein and Richard Thaler. But, yeah. you know, this, this idea or this, this, you know, this area of psychological research in terms of how people make decisions, if yeah. you will, and, and that their behavior, kind of the, the, what I would say is traditional, Economics is very what I would call elegant, right? That people are a hundred percent rational and that, you know, they always make rational decisions. Whereas, you know, behavioral economics is the fact that, you know, the real world's messy and it's messy how people make decisions. One of the things about risk allies and, and, you know, there are lots of different risk profiling tools that have been in the industry. You know, I've been almost in the industry 20 years and have seen different, lots of different tools. Many of them are what I would consider kind of qualitative based, where it's more of trying to assess, you know, how people feel as opposed to this quantitative. And and I I love the way you described kind of the contractor and the architect and the, you know, the prospective homeowner and, you know, this idea of a moderately conservative hallway, if you will, as opposed to feet and inches, which is a, a common standard unit of measurement that everybody can agree you know, what an inch is or what a foot is. Yeah. And so maybe share a little bit why we're, when there were these other tools, what was it about the the kind of quantitative specific nature yeah. of the risk number that you felt like made a lot of sense to you? And, and yeah. why did you take that approach as opposed to, you know, more of the, the, the qualitative approach? Yeah, no, I, I, I love how you articulated that. And, you know, if you go back to a lot of that work by behavioral economists, you know, it's it's interesting because there are some people who perceive our belief in the quantitative objective approach as one that says people behave rationally all the time. Far from it. Actually, the quantitative objective approach, in my opinion, is the only way to actually account for the fact that people do not behave rationally all the time. I can guarantee you that there will be plenty of financial advisors who use the risk allies approach. And, you know, this client, they go through the process and they're a risk 42 and, and the advisor is like, why? They've got, you know, a large income, tons of savings. There's no reason that they shouldn't be a risk 85, right? They've got their whole career ahead of them. They've got lots of time. Like it doesn't make any sense. People are not rational beings. They, they, they feel and perceive and believe different things. And which impacts their behavior, right? Exactly. That, that ultimately it impacts what they do. Exactly. exactly. And so, you know, the, the, the challenge with the qualitative approach is that how people feel on a given day is is not a very good proxy for how they're going to feel when they are under stress six months from now, right? And and you know, I mean, I, we we can we can laugh about the architect contractor example, but like 
there are some days that I feel like my house is the perfect size. And there are some days I feel like it's too small. And there are some days I feel like it's too large and I don't want to take care of it anymore. And I, I just think that, you know, how people are feeling today on a qualitative basis does not always have a good relationship with how they're going to feel in the future, particularly if they're under stress in that future. And, you know, I, another way that I've heard it articulated, and I, and I like this, is that we don't actually have a, a, a very good relationship with ourselves 30 years into the future, right? We can't really relate to who, who we're going to be. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, I struggle with that sometimes three years in the future. I, we're, we're going through like a three-year planning process right now here at, at Riskalyze. And I'm like, that's really interesting. I don't know that I've, I've, you know, for a while picked up my head and looked out three years and gone, I know exactly, you know, what I'm thinking, you know, my relationship with myself will be three years from now. It's 2020, right? We're focused on, on, on the here and the now. So all this to say, the quantitative approach, first of all, will absolutely begin to break down past six months from now. That's one of the things we discovered in our early research is that people could actually, you know, if they are working with dollar amounts that are relevant to them, that are personal to them, this is my money and I am, you know, kind of reacting to it right now. And, you know, the idea of losing all this money or choosing, you know, certainty or risk here, this is something that's real to me because these are my dollar amounts. I can relate to that. But honestly, if you go out further than about six months, it begins to break down and it will at some point, I can't, I can't pinpoint what it is, but if you tried to project using a quantitative approach, how somebody might react to risk and certainty in their money five years from now, I, I don't think you'd be any better than the qualitative approach at figuring that out. But you know what we've, I think, consistently been able to show is that we can look at that using the quantitative approach about six months from now. We can get a really good understanding of how people are going to react to seeing those big red numbers and those big green numbers in relationship with their money and what kinds of decisions they might make on that basis. And that ultimately can set them up with this framework. That's, that's where we get to the alignment part, right? Because we can say, well, based on your answers, this is kind of what your, I guess, your biases or your instincts might be based on your money six months from now. Let's look at, a, a, at an investment portfolio that kind of fits the same framework. Because, you know, if, if you take a look at this, where if we plug this investment portfolio into your long-term plan, you know, hey, you're 55 years old, you haven't saved, you're telling me you're a risk 32, okay? We're going to have to make some other decisions, right? Because we're not going to get you to your goal investing like a risk 32. So we're going to have to like, you know, live on less money after retirement, we're going to have to, you know, work longer, we're going to have to make some of those different changes to kind of make the math come together here. And ultimately what I think it does even when people like actually hit risk alignment, they go, okay, I'm a risk 55 and that's how I'm invested. Great. What it really does is it builds this short-term framework that helps that investor understand and react to risk appropriately, right? We heard this from advisor after advisor after advisor in March and April that like, hey, you helped me build a short-term framework for my clients to understand this risk and react to it appropriately. So even though it was a 5% probability event where, where things were falling below our expectations at times, we were able to look at that and go, look, I get it. I understand the situation we're in and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to make a good short-term decision because ultimately that's what this is all about. We want to take people who are making fearful 
short-term, you know, bad short-term decisions and transform them into fearless investors who make great short-term decisions because, you know, I was speaking to a group of financial advisors one time and I said, how many of you help your clients make great long-term decisions? And, you know, all the hands raised in the room. I said, I'm sorry, it's a trick question. None of your clients make long-term decisions. They only make short-term decisions. You're responsible for turning their short-term decisions into long-term financial outcomes. So if we can get the technology to help you with that framework to transform their short-term decisions from bad to good, that's where financial advisors shine because they turn great short-term decisions into amazing long-term financial outcomes. Yeah. There's so, so much awesome stuff that you just covered right there. You know, I think that study that, or one of the studies you were referencing, I actually write about it in my latest book, The Fiduciary Formula, was a study by a guy named Hal Hirschfeld. And he had, had done research with groups of people and used like a digital avatar to help them see them like to age themselves, you know, to like age 70 and then ask them what they would do with money. And there's really fascinating research. One of the things that came out of it was that exactly what you said is that people have a very hard time. Like I can think about what my life is going to look like six months from now, but 25 years from now, there's so much noise. It's so fuzzy. What he found in his research was when he gave people a, a framework, word that you used, right, where he digitally aged what they would look like so they would see a representation of themselves at 70, they were much more likely to save more money because they felt connected to their future self. He called it their their current self versus their future self. And he said that you know when people are disconnected from their future self, it's very hard for them to make long-term decisions. And it's interesting, you know, you guys have this very, this tool is really meant, like you said, is kind of six month intervals. There's a really interesting book you might've read called Atomic Habits by a guy named James Clear. And, you know, one of the things he talks about in that book is this idea that, that kind of small short-term decisions, these, these decisions that we make every day kind of turn into habits and, they're like the compound interest of our behaviors over time, right? It's these small choices that we make every day. Am I going to exercise? Am I going to eat right? Am I, you know, am I going to save less than I, you know, I earn today? Yeah. And yeah. it's those little incremental short-term steps that build the right behaviors over time. And, you know, I've always sensed that that risk allies in some ways is a tool to, not solve people's behavioral challenges, but in some ways harness the power of their behavior, which is really what the the yeah. kind of ERISA world has has gotten right in a lot of ways around behavioral finance. And yeah. I actually think the ERISA space, the the 401k industry is ahead of the private client retail wealth management industry around harnessing behavioral finance. It's not really about necessarily changing people's behavior because that's really, really hard. What it's about is really framing and shaping shaping their behavior. So, so many great things that you talked about. I love how you said that because, and I love that word. I've used that word before because there's a talk that I give about confirmation bias and, you know, just, it's the mother of all biases. Right. And and I will say like, I think that in the first year of our existence as a company, we had the naive belief that we could defeat confirmation Mm -hmm. bias. Right. And just really quickly. So confirmation bias being the idea that, just for listeners who may not yeah. have heard of that that term before, it's it's really the idea that we seek out and and overweight information that aligns with the beliefs that we have, and we underestimate the vis- validity, if you will, of information that contradicts what we believe. So we're yeah. we're much more prone to believe things that confirm what we believe yeah. than 
go against what we believe. Yeah, for sure. And and it's and it's one of those things that you know a very easy belief is when we see you know the CNBC screen filled with red and we're like, oh, the market is going down. I need to sell. Red equals bad, right? And green, the market is up. I need to buy because green equals good, right? So so it's it's one of the most baseline you know, responses to, to kind of, of course, confirmation bias can get far more sophisticated than that. But that's a that's a very, you know, simple version of it. And I would say that we had this naive belief that we could somehow defeat it. And over time, you know, I, a year or two in, we, we kind of realized that what we were actually building was a way to harness it. Because if you could get the investor to agree that it would be normal behavior for their portfolio kind of 95% of the time, to end up somewhere between the red number and green number here six months from today, the very common thing that advisors tell us is that before they implement the risk-alized process, they get a phone call from the client. They're like, oh, my portfolio is down 3%. Like, am I okay? Okay. Now, they're not actually yelling at the advisor to sell. Okay. But they're kind of telling them like, hey, are are, are we going to be like, I'm not sure I trust this. Right. Right. And the advisors point out that like once they normalize what normal behavior is for a, a, a client's portfolio, number one, the client makes far fewer of those phone calls. Sometimes they just want to hear the advisor's reassurance, but they make far fewer of those phone calls because they understand that, you know, down 8% is normal behavior for this portfolio, you know, in a six month time frame. But but the other thing that happens is it harnesses confirmation bias because they were part of the decision-making process to put the money into a portfolio with that kind of normal behavior. So they're able to say, okay, we're down 6%. I was right, right? Like this is normal behavior for this portfolio. I was right. The right decision is to is to stay the course. Or, you know, I was up, I'm we're up 10%. I was right, right? Like, like this is normal behavior for this portfolio. The right decision is to stay the course. And at the end of the day, harnessing confirmation bias turned out to be not only you know the achievable thing, but also I would argue the better thing because we are just hardwired with this, right? And to make it work for you instead of be something that we're just constantly trying to defeat, I think turned out to be a much more valuable path. Yeah, that that's a fascinating. In some ways, I view it as it it, it kind of gives. I love the idea of getting investors, clients to buy in, to be part of that. Yeah. You know, to be to be part of that decision. You know, I'm, I I have four kids. You know, between the ages of six and fourteen, and you know, when 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 they're really young, you know, you can essentially force your kids to do what you want them to do. You can make the decisions for them. What I'm finding with my, especially with my fourteen and my twelve year old yeah. right now is. You know, I need them to, it's less about telling them what to do and making them do what I want them to do. And it's more about helping give them a framework so that they can kind of come to agreement that a course of action is the right course of action. It's and kind a of lot easier if you can get them to buy in and uh, make it their idea instead of just your idea. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you, you're much more like, it's a lot more time consuming to, uh, to try to get them to buy in. Yeah. But what's interesting, yeah. and, and we, we actually have this philosophy, to be honest with you, in, you know, in the ERISA space, one of the important things is yeah. of good governance is to take meeting minutes. And, and since we really began, like we, we take very detailed meeting minutes every time we meet with a retirement plan committee and, and, yeah. Part of the reason why, so there are two elements. There's taking minutes and then there's spending a lot of time educating our clients, not just about what we think they should do, but the why behind it. Because I've always found that, you know, so often we make decisions 
and time goes on and, and, you know, a lot of decisions don't turn out the way we expect them to. Yeah. And it's easy to go back and to start to question, well, why, did, why are we here? And, and you really, and you wind up someplace because of the decisions that you made. Yeah. And what minutes do is it allows us to go back and to revisit, especially if we've forgotten why we made the decisions we did. It, yeah. it provides us that context and that kind of that framework to go back and say, oh, that's right. You know, we had these assumptions that ultimately led to these decisions. Point. But the other one is that clients then own the decision making process yeah. as well. And it's, it's, you know, it's not so much like, why did you do this? It's more of, oh, I understand why we, why we did this. You know, it's interesting because it, it ties in with something we, you know, I, I did a talk on this year about the concept of storytelling. And, you know, I'll talk about this very, very quickly here, but like the concept is basically that like every story, every, every great movie we watch, every great book we read has roughly the same architecture, which is really interesting. Right. And, and effectively what it means is, you know, there's a, there's a hero in the story, right. And they're, they're facing some kind of problem or challenge. And typically a guide comes along and like helps them through that problem or challenge and kind of gets them to the other side. And, you know, and if it's, if it's a story with a happy ending, right, it gets them to success and, and, and they achieve whatever success looks like. You can look at that framework and it, and it just applies like so many different movies, films, you know, books, et cetera. Like we'll, we'll use Star Wars as an example, right? Like Luke Skywalker comes on the scene. He's got a pretty big problem that he's got to deal with. Obi-Wan Kenobi appears as the guide, you know, and, and, and here's the really interesting thing. Advisors, because they are doing such heroic work, often make themselves the hero of the story. And the truth is, is that despite the absolutely heroic work that financial advisors do to help get people to the other side, the truth is, is that the advisors have to make the client the hero of the story because they're the guide. They're the one there to help the client. They're, they're Obi-Wan. They're not Luke. They're Obi-Wan. They're not Luke, yeah. right? It's and, a great point. And it's, it's, it's really – what's fascinating is that if you don't do that, if you make the client you – know, or if you make yourself the, the hero of the story, what does that make your client? I'll tell you what, it makes your client a spectator. Like they are sitting on the couch eating popcorn, watching your movie, okay? And that means that they're not involved in the story. And that's a very transactional relationship, right? Right. And, and you know, best of luck getting the client to take some level of responsibility for their input and decisions because they're just a spectator eating popcorn. That's why it's so important to remember to like step back and be the guide and make sure the client understands that they're the hero of the story. I think that's a great point. That's a great point. You know, in a lot of ways, I think people just naturally, especially longer term decisions, there's so much pressure to make the right decision or to make yeah. the perfect decision. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like that's just a, that's a utopian <laughs> idea that we can make perfect decisions, yeah. but, well, but that's not the real world. And we're going to make, you know, the, the goal isn't to make perfect decisions, Right. I think the goal is to make consistently good decisions and then recognize quickly enough when you've made a bad one and right pivot and course correct. And it yeah. seems like risk lies in a lot of ways. And so stepping back, there's all yeah. this pressure. And a lot of times we don't give ourselves permission to make choices or mistakes because of all that pressure. And it seems like in some ways risk lies, you know, when you help people kind of understand you know, what their risk number is, and maybe their risk number is actually higher than what they thought it was. In some ways that investing fearlessly is a, is 
empowering them or giving them permission to invest in a certain way, or maybe their risk number is lower than they thought it was. And maybe it's giving them permission. Do you see that? Do you, do you see in those kind of short term periods, like this permission is helpful in getting people to own their decisions? For sure. And, and I, you know, I I think it, it, it looks a lot of different ways. Like one of the things that advisors will say is a client who is invested with a lot more risk than they want or realize, will walk in and say things like, yeah, my portfolio just keeps bouncing around. I don't really understand. You know, it just feels like it's, it's, it's kind of bouncing around a lot. Right. And almost inevitably that kind of client will be a risk 42 and their portfolio is invested like a risk 85. Right. And when they see that, they're kind of like, I get it. Like I want to drive 42 miles an hour and my portfolio is driving 85 miles an hour. And that just doesn't feel comfortable to me. You know, again, a lot of advisors will look at that and say, well, I, you know, what if I don't think that the right decision is for the client to drive 42? Well, that's great. Like we now have a communication framework to like talk with the client about this and say, so here's the deal. We can drive your portfolio at 42. Okay. But here are the decisions we're going to have to make if we want to make that choice. Right. And the, and the trade offs that may be involved in that, right? The trade offs, because, because, you know, like, like we can get from, from LA to New York in six hours or 30 years. There's a lot of different ways we can go. Right. Like it used to take 30 years in covered wagons. You know, you'd be a whole different generation of people by the time you got there. Right. But like we can do this a lot of different ways, but what we have to do is figure out the trade-offs and figure out what you're comfortable with. And, you know, I hear from a lot of advisors who say, you know, we got the client comfortable with investing up in the 80s like we think they should. And we got them bought into the idea that they're going to have to accept as normal a greater level of risk in the portfolio than they, you know, kind of their, their, their instincts would lead them to feel comfortable with. There are other advisors who say, you know what? I couldn't get them comfortable with that. At the end of the day, they said, I'm just not comfortable with that much risk in the portfolio. So we looked at the trade-offs and we had them retire later. We had them save more different things that they could do to, to make the math work. And sometimes you end up meeting in the middle. Sometimes you end up saying, well, let, what if we could get you comfortable with this much risk and we invest you like a 60, okay? And you're still going to have to make some trade-offs to kind of make that work. At the end of the day, like that is the art of being a great financial advisor and helping your client bring these different trade-offs together and 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 make the right short-term decisions that you can turn into those long-term financial outcomes. And that's why candidly, it's we are a long time away from any robo having the human empathy and communication skills and ability to get people to make decisions from any robo being able to replace a human advisor. Like, right. like we're a long, long ways away from that. I am very bullish on the future of the human advisor because of that. It's interesting. You know, I, I, and I hadn't thought about this until we, you know, one of the things I love about this podcast is getting a chance to, to speak with, you know, really bright, articulate folks, but it's the learnings, quite and frankly, me. that, that, and, and, and you as yes. well, and you as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's all, it's only, it's all, it's all about the company you keep. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But it's the learnings that come out of it. And I, you know, I had always thought of Riskalyze as more of a, an investing tool. But what you're just describing is that it's more of a planning tool, right? It's a, an investing focused tool that paves the way used appropriately for 
planning discussions, those yeah, things no, I, about I, I, trade-offs I, I is interesting. I absolutely think that's right. And I, I, I would tell you, like we work in close partnership with, we would never try to paint ourselves as a comprehensive financial planning tool. You know, we work in close partnership with those tools to drive data into those tools and make the financial planning process. So part of kind of like the financial planning tech stack, if you will. Yeah, yeah for sure. But, but I think that there, the reality is, is that there are a lot of clients who have not reached the sophistication level or frankly, financial advisors who, who, who don't have the, the buy-in to do that level of comprehensive financial planning. And we look at that and say, there is a great opportunity to make sure that people actually address the trade-offs, even if they address them at a relatively basic level. That's like 80% of the battle compared to not addressing them at all, right? And so is there value in taking clients to the next level of comprehensive planning? You bet there is. And that's why we build great integrations with a lot of these comprehensive financial planning tools like eMoney and Money Guide and, and Right Capital and others, right? But there is a lot of opportunity in getting people to do the trade-off discussion. I think we drive more of those trade-off discussions. And frankly, we're a rising tide for financial planning because we actually get more financial advisors and more clients into the trade-off discussion than, than has happened before. Right. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's, that's exactly right. And that's an interesting, even for me in thinking about this, you know, even an interesting way to think, to understand kind of how Riskalyze fits into, like you said, yeah. kind of more of that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, advisors, I would argue are kind of the, you know, they're the, the craftspeople, right? And yeah. it's, it's the tools, right? You can have a, you know, Riskalyze and you mentioned right capital or e-money or money guide pro, right? Are, are, are tools now tools yeah. in the hands of, a do-it-yourselfer who is trying to build him or herself a house, like you could have the best tools in the world and right. that house may not... It uh, be the best tools in the world it, and I cannot build a house. Right. Trust. But the right tools, the best tools in yeah. the hands of a a craftsman yeah. you're go- is going to yield my, my you know, brother-in-law an is incredible a result. Contractor. He is a craftsman, right? Right. So, and, and what's fascinating is that like you could hand me the most expensive set of tools that exist. I cannot build a house. Now you could hand him, you know, a very cheap set of tools and a very expensive premium set of tools. And he would tell you, he can build a house with either one, right. but he can build the house three times as fast and at a, at a 10 X level of quality with, with the right set of tools. And right. I think that's a really great analogy because yeah. advisors, you know, it, it's, it's been shown over and over again, advisors who invest in their tools and their tech stack are advisors who succeed. And, de- and deliver better outcomes for their clients. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's, I, I want to get into that a, a little bit later because that is a lot of the fintech, a lot of the investment in the fintech space, a lot of the tools. And I've talked about this on other other episodes, but, you know, the private, a lot of the investment has gone into the kind of the traditional retail wealth management side from a fintech yep. perspective and much less in the ERISA space. So we'll, we'll get to that, that yep. you know, we'll get to that question in, in a couple of minutes. But before we get there, you know, you've been around roughly a decade, right? Yeah. Somewhere around a decade or so. Yeah. And has obviously been a pretty incredible time for the markets, especially U.S. markets. And, yeah. you know, I think what I've found after doing this for, you know, almost 20 years is that investors typically, their their risk appetite increases when markets are good. 
and it decreases when markets are bad. It's the analogy that you used about right your house that on some days you feel like it's you know it's like the Goldilocks. Sometimes it's too big, sometimes it's too small, sometimes it's just right. And you know just the the challenge behaviorally speaking that that people they they there's kind of the the fear of missing out and markets go up and you know people tend to to sabotage themselves by making bad decisions. We've been in a time as you've been in existence where you know markets have really been going have been going up. But earlier this year with the pandemic, we saw things kind of come to a screeching halt. I'm really interested. What did you see kind of across your business? It seems like that is like a, a great kind of stress testing case that maybe you hadn't encountered as a business up until that yeah. point. What did you find? What did you find with your, your advisor partners? What did you find yeah. with clients during great. that downturn? Yeah, great question. You know, first of all, one of the things that we're somewhat, I don't know, mitigated from or, blo- or, or, or protected from with that change in risk appetite is that quantitative approach, right? Because what's fascinating is that when we are talking about your money and we're talking about, you know, chunks of your money disappearing versus, you know, the certainty of a lesser gain or the certainty of a small gain or something like that, right? And you're you're making those trade-offs thinking about where you might be, you know, if you make this risk choice or the certainty choice, it tends to kind of it drowns out the excitement of an increased risk appetite by watching Tesla go up, you know, 18% you know, or, or, or Apple double over the course in a, of a, in a day, in a day, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, so, you know, all of that excitement and, and the, the risk appetites increasing, you know, does kind of like come back to earth when I look at it through the lens of my money and I'm thinking about this money disappearing and going poof, right? It, it brings it a little bit back down to earth and it calms that down. Not to say that, you know, we don't, we don't see euphoria, sometimes in the data. We don't see pessimism sometimes in the data. We see that more in more of the qualitative checks that we do with our check-ins feature, right? Where we're saying, how are you feeling about the markets? And what is, so what is that? What is that just for listeners? What is that check-ins feature? Yeah. So that, that, that's the idea that advisors, you know, want to find a way to keep their finger on the pulse speed of their client's psychology between reviews, right? So they, a lot of them send out check-ins now monthly, and they just, you know, look, if it comes back red, they're going to they're going to reach out to that client and like touch base with them and kind of, you know, figure out what they're nervous about and make sure that they're feeling good so that we're not like getting, you know, worse and worse and more and more stressed throughout that period of time. And then we hit the client review and it's like, dude, we got to sell, like we got to get out. Okay. So it's, it's really, it's really interesting to watch, you know, that those questions very much kind of tracked with the markets. And you could watch people, and you know, again, what's fascinating about that is thousands and thousands of data points. Really, we've delivered like well over five million rips numbers at this stage. I haven't looked at it in a while, but but you know, like tens of thousands of data points, you know, this year, right? And at the end of the day, what's fascinating about it is that like all these different people contributing all this different data throughout this year, and the perception that people have towards the markets is almost tracking the S and P five hundred. It's fascinating, and so. You know, all that said, the confidence that people have in the markets, we see risk numbers being a lot more stable because they're based on that quantitative objective approach. So from that perspective, risk numbers have been pretty stable. Clients have been pretty stable. Uh, that's, that's what our advisors report to us. Now, is everybody a little bit more anxious? 
Is everybody a little bit more concerned? You bet. Do we? Have and that a- might be that risk first decade that you're talking exactly. about. That this is exactly. right. That. Exactly right. And do we have a communication framework to help people understand and react to this appropriately? Yes, we do. So we're prepared for that. What we've certainly seen in our business, and this is something that was interesting, you know, we had a ton of financial advisors who were struggling in the early days of the pandemic because for crying out loud, they're paid based on assets and assets are down dramatically. So it hadn't quite hit their cash flow, but they're modeling that and they're looking at that and going, man, this is this is a real problem. We had some firms that, you know, maybe they were billing advanced firms. I don't really know, but we had some firms, relatively small number, you know, totally speaking, but some firms that were really in severe financial distress, you know, always tough. We tried to find ways to, to help those firms and, and just kind of help them through this. And we figure we'd rather have friends out there that can be long-term customers than to have, you know, temporary customers who will no longer be friends. And so we did our best to, to try to help advisors in that situation. Fortunately, with the market snapback, I think most advisors saw their economics kind of return and have pretty mild to, to no symptoms at all in terms of their, you know, their own revenue as a firm. What was interesting for us is that we saw, you know, we, we saw a, a, certainly a slowdown in advisors jumping aboard because advisors were really busy. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty busy. We actually didn't go a single business day, including Black Thursday, that we didn't have at least one new advisor join Riskalyze, which was kind of cool from our perspective. And we've seen, you know, a big uptick in terms of, I think it's the inflection point of the risk first decade of advisors saying, I, I, I got to put a risk solution on my desk in 2020. This is not something I can be without. But what we did immediately see in March and April was our, you know, we we naturally have some advisors cancel every given month. We lose advisors to God and golf. We lose advisors, you know, to other reasons as well, changes in their business, changes in their business model, things like that. What was fascinating is that that cancellation rate plummeted in March and it has stayed low. And and again, I, I just, I don't know what to say about that beyond obviously advisors realized this was a tool they needed in their toolbox to be able to talk about risk with their clients in, in this risk first decade. But we've continued to see that. So, you know, it's always been interesting. I've, I've, I've talked to a number of people who have said, well, you've never really been able to stress test your business in a bad market. And I'm like, it, it's true. We, we, we see pockets of volatility. Our phones usually rink off the, off the hook because advisors need a better way to talk about risk with their clients. But we haven't really seen like the bear market. So we saw one and all in all, you know, we're knock on wood, our business performed well through it. I think, you know, we we work on behalf of great financial advisors who performed well in, in their businesses through it. And frankly, we're heroes in what they accomplished for their clients through it. And I think that's why. Got it. You know, generally speaking, right, like most businesses, I mean, we you know, we work with a lot of companies around the country. And sure. during that time, not to say the 401k plan was not important, but in level of priority, you know, yeah. most companies were focused on how do I, you know, how do I keep the doors open? How do I keep yes. my business afloat? And I think that's probably your point is you would expect yeah. that in a, a bad economic time for advisory firms, potentially, yeah. they'd be looking to, to, you know, what are the things that we can cut from the PL. Yep. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, not only perhaps Riskalyze became, you know, the perception of even a more essential tool in the toolbox yeah. as a as one that was at risk. Let's talk a little bit about just kind of the retirement, the 401k, you know, yeah. 403b, the the ERISA space. I yeah. think Riskalyze, probably your focus historically has been more on that, call it individual independent 
advisor. This podcast is obviously, you know, focused at on retirement plan decision makers and and retirement industry professionals, advisors included. And so, how does Riskalyze think about the defined contribution space? And what yeah. do you what do you envision, or how do you see? You know, what are some of the steps that or, or approaches you've taken maybe in the past on how Riskalyze can kind of slot into that tech stack? in the ERISA space. And where do you see that going moving forward? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, we we've we've done a few different things and I think our our thinking continues to evolve there. For one thing, we've got a lot of advisors that use the retirement plans feature inside Riskalyze Elite. And that effectively allows them to set up a plan with a list of participants with a set of of you know models particular to that that plan, right? Based off the fund menu, based off of, you know, models that might be like managed account models that might be available in that plan and really kind of deliver the risk number at scale to a large number of plan participants in that plan. You know, when we built that, we basically had a lot of advisors who were very manually, you know, you know, kind of sending out individual risk, risk questionnaires to plan participants and then, you know, very manually kind of creating that, that follow through of like, Here's the model that will kind of best fit you from the, from the, you know, the menu available in the plan. You know, so we wanted to, to kind of automate that and make that easier for a financial advisor to, to, to do. What we found was really interesting. You know, so first of all, we've got a lot of advisors who specialize in advising retirement plans. And the feedback there was, Hey, this is a great tool. Love using it. Obviously, you know, great next step would be, man, wouldn't it be great if this was actually built in like at the record keeper level, because I'd like to have the client, you know, the participant actually rechecking their risk number on a, on a, on a six month to year long basis, you know, remind them to do that. I'd like to have them when they're in there doing their elections, just to be able to like, you know, see the risk number of what matches up with them and maybe point them to the model that's closest to them. It'd be just a lot more seamless if that was kind of baked in at the, at the record keeper level. So that's, that was, you know, great feedback from them. Then we had a lot of other advisors who are not the formal advisor on a retirement plan, but they advise a lot of plan participants. And particularly in cities where there might be a large population of of employees under a particular plan, like, you know, here near us, for example, there's a huge, you know, Intel office, right? You can be located, you know, in Redmond, Washington and have a Microsoft employee on every corner. Really good example of how, uh, you know, you might have advisors who are not advising the plan, but advising a lot of participants in the plan. And so, you know, the feedback from those advisors uh, was interesting. A lot of them were very nervous to, you know, certainly to build a a model out of the fund menu, for example, because, you know, they're not the 338 or the 321 fiduciary on that plan. And they're, they're kind of nervous about engaging in that. And, you know, I, I have to say like, rightly so if ERISA, one of its, you know, great challenges, frankly, is that it is a decades old law that we've had a lot of interpretation and a lot of, and, and, and frankly, a lot of the, of the pieces of ERISA are very, very tough for a casual advisor trying to touch 401k plans to tackle. It's, it's complicated. The, the rules are very different. And, you know, I think advantage to the specialist firms that really focus on that, you know, like yours, like, like a number of others. Right. And so, for those advisors, the feedback on the retirement plans uh, feature was, wow, this is awesome. 
if there's a 338 or a 321 on the plan who's provided models, and then I can put those in to let the, the participant choose from. But I, I kind of feel like I need to get real and like actually advise plans if I'm going to really get into this. So it was interesting. That kind of led us in 2017 to say, well, it would be great if we could provide you know that kind of solution at the plan level and, and allow advisors to kind of leverage a, a full stack technology solution to kind of serve plans. And so we partnered at that stage with Vestwell. And, you know, Aaron Schum, great entrepreneur. I know you've had him on the show and, you know, I, I think the world of him, you know, that partnership has not been one that's been wildly successful. A couple different reasons for that. You know, when we launched that together three years ago, I think we looked at that and said, wow, this is a great way to get, you know, kind of any financial advisor to kind of come back in and, and advise 401k plans again. And I think, you know, we look at that in hindsight now and say, really challenging to get advisors to want to apply themselves to that. I think it, it is a, a field of specialization. So you have to be really committed to it. If you're really committed to it, frankly, most of those advisors already have a set of retirement plans that they're already serving and moving them onto a different platform is not always you know, a, a, an easy thing to do, a desirable thing to do. And I think also that you know part of the part part of the challenge was that Vestwell's business was growing tremendously over in the you know kind of packaged in with HR benefits you know products and and you know just big distribution across different different networks. So you know individual advisors coming in who weren't really optimized for serving retirement plans in the first place were kind of not the first priority there. So you know it's grown, it's it's done okay, but it's it's you know as we kind of look to the future, it's interesting. I think we see a future where we do more partnerships and more integrations across record keepers. You know we're in the early stages of thinking about how we can partner with a lot of those record keepers. We've got talks going with a number of the bigger ones to say, I think there are some ways that we could build the risk number into those record keeping platforms. You know, we got to do that in a way where the value obviously is flowing to the plan sponsors and plan participants. So, you know, we, we, we can't just layer costs onto the record keepers. We can't just layer costs onto the advisor. The value needs to be captured and, and earned, you know, by us, but it's, it's probably flowing through from plan sponsors and plan participants in that way. But something that is, you know, additive to the to the record keeper, additive to the advisor, and the advisor can get the benefits of the of the behavioral tools for their participants by convincing their plan sponsor, hey, this is well worth it. Let's flip this on at the plan level and let's let's provide the risk number technology to to participants. And you know, so there's there's a lot of excitement about that. That's, we're still very early in that strategy and in conversations. I think Vestwell will be one of those and and all of their other plans that have come aboard all, you know, in, in a million different ways will have the opportunity to get the risk number there rather than just folks who have come into our joint product together. So I, I think that's that's an exciting future to think about. So in thinking about is interesting on the, the my third episode was with Michael Kitsis, who mm -hmm. you probably know, who is kind of sure. the, the experts expert and and kind of the focus of that that episode was delivering employee financial wellness at scale. And, you know, this yeah. idea of, you know, retirement plan advisors, one of the challenges is that planning hasn't made its way to kind of the mass market. 
And there's a whole host of reasons why that that mostly, you know, really good, capable financial planners, probably a lot of the ones that that, you know, are riskalized customers, typically the economics of that industry an industry that we're in as well is that it's built around kind of an AUM model. And, you know, you need to have people who have assets that can afford to hire advisors that are, you know, really good and heroic as, as you described them, but also are using really, really good tools, right? Like your, like your brother-in-law, right? Who is, is saying like, if you give me the best tools, I can be much more efficient, you know, much more effective at what I do. The challenge is that that's a very small percentage of the American population that can afford to hire, quite frankly, firms like Greenspring Advisors or the other advisor partners that you work with. You know, one of the interesting things I just think about, you know, our own business is that, you know, we've got north of 50,000 participants across our across our client base. And so, you know, there's certainly the record keeper component and there's a big there's an arms race right now. You've got record keepers that are in a arms race to try to really deliver wellness right to participants. That's why I think you see like the empowers recently, you know, paying a really large sum of money for like a personal capital. And you've got every provider who's trying to get into the wellness game. You've got advisors that are trying to get into the wellness game and, you know, that scale and, and potentially delivering planning to those masses. And I think as an industry, we need to figure out how do we deliver financial planning at scale to more people. And that's going to require, I think, you know, a different probably economic model. But it seems to me that Riskalyze is a great tool that potentially can really help retirement plan advisors, especially those who are working and providing wellness or participant advice and whatnot. And, you know, maybe some of these listeners who haven't heard of Riskalyze or maybe not familiar with you that are listening today, you know, hopefully, you know, I'd encourage them to to check out what you guys are doing to really improve those interactions that they're having with participants, you know, at the advice level. Yeah, I mean, thank thank you for that. And I, I for sure, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the challenge for, you know, a, a great 401k advisor is that you know you've you've kind of got your work is kind of multiplied right because of the the number of participants in a plan you know i look at we have a 401k plan here we have a fantastic advisor who advises that plan and then provides coaching and advice and counsel to you know any of our employees who will engage with that i i find it fascinating on the one hand the number of employees who who don't engage with that advice <laughs> right, right? Right. I'm, I'm like, I really don't think you understand the value of what I'm paying for for you right now, <laughs> you know, because we don't charge them for it. We cover it all, you know, a, a, as an employer. I am I'm thrilled to see the line of people going into that conference room to meet with that advisor, you know, when they come on site and engaging with the advisor in other ways, you know, at other times, because it, it, it for me, it's just great to watch people who may not yet have those assets that allow them to hire an advisor, be able to get access to the kind of wisdom and and financial literacy to make good decisions, be in a position to hire that advisor down the road, right? For other reasons. I think that's, that's great. What I think is, is really fascinating is the other thing I would say is that like, I'm also stunned by how many of our employees Now we're at like an 86% participation rate. And at our last employee, all hands, I was just like, Hey, listen, like I got to bring this up. Like we, 
we should be well up into the 90s. Like we should be 95% plus. I mean, for crying out loud, we are empowering the world to invest fearlessly. And like, we should have 95% of our employees doing the same. So my challenge to you is like, why do you not like free money? And, you know, we do 4% fully vested, no strings attached match. So like, you know, literally we're in this pandemic. You can't go do cool things. You've got all this extra money. Like, for crying out loud, elect at least 1% of your paychecks so that we can right. give you extra free money. Right. And, and it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating challenge, you know, that 401k advisors yeah. have to drive that right, that correct behavior. Well, and that ultimately, you know, it's interesting. That's a whole different topic. And I write a lot about that in the fiduciary formula. We're big believers in behavioral economics, behavioral finance. And yep. I, I think that is quite frankly, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I think that's an area where the 401k space is really leap has really, you know, we've got more rudimentary tools fintech yep. wise, yep. I think than the, the private client world does, but, yep. you know, harnessing things like automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, yeah. um, default investing in target date funds, which uh, as well, but it's, it's all, it's all behavior. And so, you know, a lot of times, I think plan sponsors think that, well, we just need to educate people. People don't have a, a knowledge gap. They have a behavior gap. And the way that you overcome that behavior gap, right? The way you overcome that behavior gap is I mean, it's, look, look, it's engineering the plan the right way. Totally. And how simple is it to understand? Like, it doesn't require a lot of education to say, I would like to be paid more or less by my employer, right? Like, it doesn't require a lot of education to go, I think more is better. But it does require a difference in behavior to say, I'm going to be willing to take like literally 1% less money, not even in my take home, because like taxes make that even lower, you know, impact, right? I'm going to take 1% less money in my gross paycheck today to get 2% in that account and growing tax-free. Like that is one of the most powerful compounding tools for my future that I could ever make. And yet, you know, somehow even at the company empowering people to invest fearlessly with no vesting restrictions, we got 14% of people not taking the free money. So I am, I'm at the level, I'm going to be writing personal notes to everybody who has not participated and uh, seeing if I can't get that point across because you're right. It's a behavior change. It's not. So, so so I'm going to give you a free piece of advice right now. Okay, great. Don't do the notes. Okay. Here's what you do. Okay. Do a, do a re-enrollment. Everybody not participating all 14%. And I would say even the 86%, anybody. So anybody not participating automatically enroll off, do it retroactively. Anybody not participating, 14%, automatically enroll them on a certain date, call it January 1, into the plan. You're going to get a little bit of leakage, but I bet that number goes from 86% to north of 95%. And then I would tell you, anybody saving below like your default, I would say anywhere below 6%, but certainly 4%, automatically bump them up unless they opt out. Save the notes because that's, that's not going to change it. But if you do that, 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 that'll like go, it. that'll that's go a long fantastic. way and remind people, remind people, I appreciate good. And let me know how it turns out and remind people yeah. that it's easy to invest fearlessly when you get a hundred percent return on your money. And so if yeah. they put in 4%, they're automatically getting a hundred percent return on their money. That's right. I love so. it. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about, and as we start to kind of wrap up, just, what do you think the delivery of retirement investment advice, how do you think it's going to change and evolve over the next five to 10 years? 
It's a really great question. You know, first of all, it's it's obviously had to change dramatically here in 2020, right? Because I think advisors are not coming on site, most companies, right? So so all of a sudden we've got the the Zoom conference room that people can uh, can kind of join and, and talk through with the advisor. That you know, in theory, may you know who knows how the uh, what the impact of that is going to be. Is it going to be a really positive impact because we can impact more people and it's more flexible? Maybe even feels a little bit more private, or is that a negative impact because the quality of the interaction is as good? I think it's 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 too early to tell. It's hard to say. I think broadly speaking. It's very clear that we are in a retirement crisis in this country, right? We we've we've got to help people. You know, on the one hand, I'm I'm very much an individualist. I believe that people should have the right to make decisions for themselves, but I I also am a behavioralist, as we were just talking about, right? And and the power of defaults and the power of of automatic behavior, unless you opt out. You know, to me, you, you, we've got to get that right. And and I, I look at that and I just go, we've got to make a profound shift over the next decade or so. You look at the math behind Social Security trying to keep up and and some of these other challenges. There's no greater legal creator of wealth than the markets. And we simply need to get people engaged in it. And, you know, our, our, our politics are tough right now. Everything is a political football. There are elections, it feels like, every other day. You know, I, I know that they are actually longer than that, but boy, does it feel like it. And everything is a political issue. Everything is about the next election. So everything is about, you know, scaring people into, into voting for you because of the, you know, disaster that's going to occur if we, if we take the other approach. I don't have a silver bullet of what that solution is, but I do think that if we think five to 10 years in the future, we have to be in a world where... You know, it is a ton easier for employers to, to, to set up retirement plans for their employees. Those plans should be way more portable. They should be, you know, really tied to the employee and not the employer, if at all possible. You know, I, I'd like to think that 10 years from now, we get to a place where, you know, the uh, employers can really easily kind of plug into an employee's retirement account and simply you know, they may have a uniform approach to funding benefits out, but the employee has something that is portable, that goes with them, that belongs to them, and and that they can make decisions on how to on how to invest those benefits. You know, it, that to me just makes a lot of sense. But there's a lot of changes that are going to be necessary for that kind of future to exist. And and to be quite candid, without getting too political, like I, I this is not really a partisan statement as much as to say, like our political system today is engineered right now for stasis, for, for not having big changes. You know, if you look at this, we haven't admitted a state to the union in decades. And it's be, it's primarily because we're worried about the balance of power of two new senators being created. And what does that do for partisan politics on either side, right? And so our, our politics right now are engineered for status quo and not for change and not for any big changes. You know, I don't know if that changes. I don't know if there's something that sweeps across our politics and, and, and just changes that. And we can actually make big progress towards some of these ideas. But at the end of the day, we have, you know, political parties who are who are deeply opposed, first and foremost, to each other. And if we're going to get to that kind of future, we're going to have to, I think, go back to embracing wholeheartedly American individualism and, and letting people kind of self-determine you know, their, their values and, and what they want to do 
with their future. And, and, you know, again, use the power of defaults to put people on the right course and then let them make choices for themselves yeah. optionally around that. That, that I think is, is the best possible future, whether we get there in the next 10, 15, 20 years, it's hard to say. I certainly doesn't feel like it most days. <laughs> certainly doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Um, but I think what you're talking about in a lot of ways is, and you know, I'm a, an amateur behavioral economics geek yeah. and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's really about creating freedom of choice within a framework, right? That's the beautiful thing about automatic enrollment yeah. is you're not holding a gun to an employee's head saying right. you have to save for retirement. You're taking but, a pay cut so that you can serve for retirement. Yeah, that's not yeah, what you're saying. That's not what you're saying. What you are doing is you're saying, look, we're going to remove the behavioral like you have the whole opt out versus opt in. Yep. You're much less likely to opt in just because of behavioral inertia. Yep. On the flip side, you're much more likely, you know, to, to not opt out. And so it's really around, hey, we're going to put you in a position, a framework, we're going to put you in a p- position that we think clearly is in your best interest long term, but then you have the freedom to make your own choices. So, you know, this podcast, the whole mission of Fiduciary U, the podcast, yeah. the website is to make ERISA fiduciary smarter. So what would be your single best piece of advice to do that. So whether that's a, you know, an advisor that's an ERISA fiduciary, whether that's a retirement plan committee member who, you know, is an, a fiduciary to their to their employees. Yep. What would be your single best piece of advice to them? Obviously, I'm I'm biased, but I have spent the last decade of my life working on this idea. I really do think that, you know, getting the risk number, getting risk at the heart of how you help participants make election decisions is critically important because that's what drives, we've, we've talked about all these ideas here on the episode today, but like that's what drives buy-in and commitment and behavioral change is when people understand and are, and are aligned with the idea of where they're going. And, you know, that's, that's why I just really believe that that's one of the primary things that we could do to drive people to stick with their decisions for the long term and, and ultimately get to see the benefits of them. Is, is to make sure that they're aligned with the choices they're making, that they understand the choices that they're making and that they're bought into those choices. Risk number alignment to me is, is the, is the powerful way to do that. So that's, that it, it is, it's, it's focused on what I do, but that's a big part of why I've, uh, I've kind of dedicated my life and career to it at this point. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that's great. You know, as we wrap up, you know, one of the things, Knowing a little bit about your story and in preparation kind of for this episode and whatnot that I I thought was really interesting and powerful was actually your personal story. And, and, you know, I think it helps kind of inform some of the the things that you've talked about today and the way that you lead your company. But, you know, it seems like it's one really kind of rooted in in faith and fatherhood and and. You know, maybe you could just kind of share a little bit about that because I think it's a, a you know, I think it's a, a really cool story and and, you know, one that people should hear. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, we, I, for sure, I think that people who, I don't know if, I don't care if you're leading an organization that's large or small. I don't care if you're a CEO or an incredible individual contributor in a company or anywhere in between. I think that, you know, the best leaders and the best people kind of lead integrated lives, right? Where, you know, I, I whenever I hear somebody talk about work life balance, I go, you know, I've, I I gave that up a long, long time ago. Like I try to I try to have like work life harmony and integration because I lead an integrated life and like every part of me is connected to every part of me, you know. And so alignment, 
Yeah, alignment. Great, great, great point. My my faith certainly you know informs a lot of that, and and my wife and I we grew up that way, and and we grew up in church ourselves, and you know that that leads you to a whole way of thinking about about serving others. It leads you to a whole way of thinking about you know the the purpose of life and the meaning of life and what we want to do with you know the money that that has been entrusted to us, right? And I think, you know, for, for one thing that led us to thinking about ways to grow our family. So it turned out we, we, we ended up adopting three times, you know, we were never diagnosed with any reason we couldn't have kids biologically, but it just like, wasn't happening immediately. And we just kind of felt like it was, you know, it was, it was plan A for us. Like it was the right decision for us. And uh, my youngest sister was adopted internationally. So we were very comfortable, understood the process, you know, knew about it. And so we embarked on that in 2007. So we've adopted three times. Now, my first son was born in South Korea. My uh, daughter was born in Ethiopia. And then our last son, who's been, he's only been home about four years, but he is actually our oldest and so uh, he was born in Ethiopia as well. And so, you know, that, that's been incredible. We're, we'd like to say we're just your typical average Korean Ethiopian American family, you know, <laughs> nothing strange or unusual there, but you know, it's, it's been incredible because that has given us opportunities to get involved in giving back in Ethiopia, for example, with a great school project there that we support. We're building a vocational training for-profit technology business there. You know, I, I'm just on the board and and have kind of helped to get it started and raise some of the startup capital. But a really is that hope is that hope takes root. Hope I think I had looked root. in your yeah, your you wife hopetakesroot.com. Yeah. But the idea there is that you know we are we are literally on the ground with foreign investments, starting a for profit technology business to serve Ethiopian small businesses. But what it really is is it's a vocational school in disguise. That you know spends at least twenty percent of its revenue. We're still very early figuring this all out, right? But is going to spend at least twenty percent of its revenue hiring orphans and vulnerable kids as student workers, and and that will basically be a vocational school where instead of them paying tuition, we pay them. And we're we're really excited about the idea of creating this model that is sustainable, that that funds itself, and that eventually can begin replicating itself. So our mission, you know, this year is to get it off the ground. Next year is to have it really be growing, have it launch its product and actually grow revenue. The following year, it's going to be profitable. And the next year, we want it to start replicating out. And, you know, exciting, exciting, honored to be a part of that, grateful to get the chance to be a part of that. And excited to see a lot of, you know, what eventually we, we, I love what I do at Riskalyze. So we have no plans to, I have no plans to exit this, you know, anytime soon. I'm signed up for a long, long journey ahead, but I'm excited to think about the capital that we're building in Riskalyze being invested in a great cause like that in the future. And so that's where a lot of our our money goes to and nonprofit giving goes to. And it's it's a it's an inspiring thing to be a part of. That's that's a, a great story. And I'm we'll make sure in the show notes to put a link to Hope Takes Root so people can learn a little awesome. bit more about what you guys are doing there. So just as we wrap. Where can people go to connect with you or follow what you're up to at Riskalyze? For sure. If you're if you're on the Twitter, as they call it, that is probably my most active social network. So I'm at Aaron Klein on Twitter, you know, and on LinkedIn as well. But Twitter is is probably where I where I spend more of that time. And I think it makes the PR people sweat, but you know, it's it's fun. You just try to have fun with it. I have As long as you don't pull an Elon Musk, just that's you right. Know. That's right. I, I have sworn off all political arguing on Twitter because I discovered that I was wasting my time and not changing anybody's mind. 
So, so I'll still joke about it once in a while, but no, no political fights on Twitter for me. But it's it's fun sometimes to just be a spectator and and, and eat some popcorn and watch other people do it, though, right? So, right. Uh, so there you go. But yeah, I mean, and 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 you can obviously connect with a the company there and other other places as well. But I love connecting with people personally, and man, so many great financial advisors on the FinTwit subculture that has been created on Twitter. I think it's it's a fascinating group for conversation. That's awesome. Well, Aaron Klein, thank you so much for being a guest today and, and just for your insights and perspectives and have a ton of admiration for what you've built at Riskalyze and, and, you know, the way that you're, you know, empowering people to, uh, to invest fearlessly. And so thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Aaron Klein from Riskalyze. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and it helped to make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.